So I always like to ask when we begin, how many members do we have with us tonight? So this, this is a different, usually we have 90% members. So welcome all the new people with us tonight. And thank you members for your support. We invite you to become members if you're not already. There's wonderful benefits and your support will help us support or your support will go help us produce all these wonderful programs. Tonight's program, Justice and Race, is part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series, the heart of our public programs. And as always, I'd like to thank Mr. Schwartz for his support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to New York Historical. I'd also like to thank all the Chairman's Council members with us tonight for all their great work and support. Let's give them all a hand. And for the members who are here who know about our programs coming up, and those of you who don't, coming up this Friday, February 12th at 7 p.m., we'll be screening the film Glory, the 1989 film, the Civil War epic that follows the first all-black regiment regiment of, of the Union Army with introductory marks presenting the film. Historians Edna Green Medford, she is, I believe it's the head of the African American Studies Department at Howard University, David Blight and Harold Hulzer, uh, three great people um, to introduce the film and we hope you'll join us also for the corresponding program the next morning, Saturday morning with a Continental Buffet Breakfast, Reconstruction at 1.50, the next, that's the next morning, 9.30 a.m. to 11 is the program, 9 a.m. is the Buffet Breakfast, and that is with Edna Green Medford, David Blight, Harold Hulzer, and the other great historian, Eric Foner. It's gonna be quite a panel. There are some tickets left. Tonight's program will last an hour and include a question and answer session. The Q&A will be conducted via written questions on note cards. You should all have had a chance to get one, receive one with a pencil. And we have staff collecting them now and they will be collecting them later if you want to hold on and write a question a little later. Following the program, we'll have a book signing of Brian Stevenson's book, Just Mercy, A Story of Justice and Redemption. And they're available for purchase in our museum store, which is on the 77th Street side. It's the where the entrance is. And Brian Stevenson will be signing his book on the Central Park West side, uh, just in front of the doors. So we are thrilled to welcome Brian Stevenson to New York Historical Society this evening. Mr. Stevenson is the founder and executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative and a professor of law at NYU University, at New York University. He is a widely acclaimed public interest lawyer who has successfully argued several cases in the United States Supreme Court. Mr. Stevenson is the recipient of many honors for his work in social justice, including the MacArthur Foundation Fellowship Award Prize, the ACLU National Medal of Liberty, and the Ford Foundation Visionaries Award. He is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Just Mercy, which was named one of the 10 best books of nonfiction for 2014 by Time Magazine. We are also so pleased to welcome back our moderator, Brent Staples, 
who has been for years bringing and suggesting wonderful speakers for programs as he did tonight. So Brent, thank you so much for all this beautiful collaborative work. Mr. Staples writes on politics, culture, race, juvenile justice, and prison policy for the New York Times editorial board. Prior to joining the editorial page in 1990, he served as editor of the New York Times Book Review. His memoir, Parallel Time, was the winner of the Annis Field Wolf Book Award. His editorials and essays are included in dozens of college readers throughout the United States and abroad. And abroad. Before we begin, I'd just like to ask that you turn off cell phones, any beepers, and please note that photography is not permitted. And now, please join me in welcoming our guests. Thank you. You know, Brian, um, I've been writing editorials, criminal justice for a long time, the New York Times, and often when I sit down to write one after a Supreme Court decision or some other big event, I feel that I'm sort of channeling your career <laughs> and your life and your exploits in the court. Um, just last month, I sat down to write an editorial about Montgomery versus Louisiana, uh, in which the court extended the right to review uh, retrospectively to people who had been sentenced to life uh, as teenagers, you know, as, as juveniles. Um, and this, of course, uh, Montgomery feeds back into one of your big cases, Miller versus Alabama, in which the court established that it was essentially morally and constitutionally wrong to sentence a juvenile to life mandatory life without possibility of parole. And the case just a couple weeks ago was extending that right um, retrospectively to the people who had been in jail before the ruling. Um, what did you think about that ruling and how did you feel about it in your long trek toward here? Yeah, well, I was gratified because when we, uh, so this, this whole effort to challenge the way children are prosecuted in this country for me, began a long time ago, and I noticed that my clients were getting younger and younger and younger. And, uh, you know, it was a consequence of, you know, 30 years ago, listening to criminologists go around this country, talk about how some children aren't children, some kids may look like kids, they may sound like kids, but don't be deceived, they're not kids. And I watched these criminologists come up with a term to demonize a whole generation of children, mostly black and brown kids. And they said that these kids aren't kids. They said these are, quote, super predators. That's the word they used. Well, 1990s, yeah. 1990s. And every state in the country lowered the minimum age for trying children as adults. And what we created was this world that very few people knew about with hundreds of thousands of kids in the adult prison system, some in jails and prisons with adults where they're at risk of sexual abuse and violence. Uh, and then these kids sentenced to die in prison, some as young as 13. And so when we started doing that, when we challenged and won Miller, uh, I think we assumed that Miller was definitely going to be applied retro retroactively. We didn't actually think that was going to be a question. And most of the states that, dis that reviewed this question of whether you, you know, whether you had to give relief to all of the kids who were subjected to this mandatory life without parole said that, yes, of course it applies retroactively. And it was just really a handful of states that gave rise to this Montgomery decision, uh, but they happened to be the states with the largest number of children sentenced to die in prison. Pennsylvania, Michigan, 
Louisiana, uh, Alabama. And I think one of the frustrations for me generally mm -hmm. is that we are still so corrupted by the politics of fear and anger. We're still so resistant when the United States Supreme Court says this is cruel, this is unusual, this is unconstitutional. This is unconstitutional. We, there are people having meetings that say, well, do we, have to share, do we have to spare everybody? Are there people we can actually still be cruel uh, uh, and unconstitutional toward? And that's what these states said. They said, well, okay, we can't do this to the kids that are about to be sentenced, but let us please do it to the kids that have already been sentenced. And it's this very cynical, resistant attitude that has shaped the conduct of these states, and they almost do it for the politics of it. Uh, and so it was gratifying to have the court say no. Uh, if something is cruel and unusual, it means that no one can be subject to it. It means it was, it was, it is, and, it is, <laughs> and will be in the future. And will be in the future. And in that respect, it's an important affirmation of this idea that you don't get to pick and choose uh, who you subject to unconstitutional treatment. Yes, what year was it that the court outlawed the death penalty for juveniles? 2005. Right. Uh, and people think that that, that must have happened 50 oh, it was years Roper, ago. wasn't it? That was Roper versus Simmons, and, and that was a difficult, you know, it was amazing because the only other countries that were executing children were countries like Iran uh, and uh, North, North Korea and these places. And I would have these meetings with my young clients. I'd go to the prison and say, you know, it's too bad. Uh, you weren't born uh, in China. You weren't born in uh, North Korea, which actually didn't have uh, the death penalty for children. You weren't born in these countries that we uh, criticize all the time. You weren't born in Cuba because they have laws that protect children mm -hmm. from the death penalty. But here in the United States, we don't have those laws. And so we've got to put you on death row and hope to keep you alive long enough until this nation recognizes that executing children is incompatible uh, with the commitment to uh, protecting people against cruel and unusual punishment. So that started in 2005. And to be honest, when I went back to the row in, in Alabama and told my clients, look, we won this case, you, can't, you won't be executed, there wasn't joy because, you know, life imprisonment without parole is a different kind of death sentence. Yes. It's death by execution or death by incarceration. And these were still very much young adolescents who in moments of uh, uh, adolescence confusion had done some really violent things. Well, you know, I, a few days after um, Montgomery, mm -hmm. I, wrote, I wrote a subsequent editorial about a fellow named Taurus Buchanan, yeah. who is, I guess, about 40 now yeah. in Louisiana. And uh, he got into a, a fist fight when he was 16. Um, his cousin, I think it was, was having a fight with someone else. He stepped into the fight and punched a smaller boy, and the boy died. Yeah. And Taurus was given life without chance of parole. Very few people know just how, uh, how broad these laws have been. I mean, I mean, first of all, before Miller was Graham, and Graham was just the law that dealt with kids convicted of non-homicides, right. Right? right? Kids like... Um, Terrence Graham, who convicted of a, an armed burglary, who mm -hmm. had life without parole. I represented kids who had been in aggravated assaults, life without parole. Uh, but yes, that, that we don't require intent, that there are no restrictions on restricting the sentence to the most extreme cases. One of my clients that I write about in the book was Trina Garnett from Pennsylvania, who was living in a household where she was subjected to lots of horrific abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse. Her mother died when she was nine. She was intellectually disabled, family broke apart. She was living in the streets, eating out of garbage cans, uh, unable to find shelter. She was taken in by someone. 
She got involved with a boy who lived next door, and one night she tried to go see the boy and climb through the window and was using mattress to find mm -hmm. his room. And mattress dropped, the house caught on fire, and tragically, two children died during the course of that fire. There was no dispute. She did not intend to kill anybody. She did not try to hurt anybody. But in Pennsylvania, even an unintentional death, felony murder, mandatory life imprisonment without parole. She was 14 years of age. She went to the women's prison at Muncie. She was raped by a male guard. She got pregnant, uh, was not allowed to keep the child, obviously. Uh, she's now been in prison for 39 years. Mm -hmm. And she was one of the people we couldn't get relief to because the Pennsylvania courts were saying, no, we're going to continue to maintain this cruel and unusual punishment for people like Trina. We're not going to apply it retroactively. You know, what's astonishing is... You want to come? Sorry. Technical breaking. Okay. Better. When I end up writing these editorials on your cases and others, um, I often think back to the time when I was impulsive, 15, 16-year-old. Mm. And like, I was not what you call an out-of-control kid. Yeah. But I did have moments where, and everyone who's had a teenager, and I have had a teenager, I did have moments uh, in which retrospectively, I was somewhat out of my mind. <laughs> and so I, you know, I, when I write these cases of people who were teenagers, I think of the impulse yeah. Is driving a hormonal 15, 16 year old. And in you know, the case of the kid Taurus who punched this guy, mm -hmm. he, was, he was instantly remorseful. He tried to revive yeah. the kid. He realized what he'd done. And, but before that moment, he was out of his mind. Uh, what strikes me, and what's of course strike you with your office in Montgomery, Alabama, many of these cases we're writing about are Southern cases. Mm -hmm. And you know, in Louisiana, uh, where they have more uh, children per capita mm -hmm. serving life without possibility of parole than any other state. Right. Uh, they, they argued tooth and nail mm -hmm. not to have to apply the new Miller standard retroactively. Mm -hmm. uh, but now they're going to have to at least give people a hearing for that kind of thing. Uh, earlier, a few years ago, um, you, you gave an interview, or not that long ago, actually, to the Marshall Project. Mm -hmm. And it was following the massacre of nine black people at the church in Charleston. And you said very pointedly um, in that interview, you said slavery did not end in 1865. You said it evolved and twisted and turned into other things. And, you know, I know a little bit of that story. We know that slavery turned into Jim Crow. We know that lynching, when it became unfavorable, turned into the death penalty. So talk a little bit about this, the evolution of slavery as it has entwined itself, the ideas, into the criminal justice system. Yeah, I don't think we can understand these issues of mass incarceration and excessive punishment without having a deeper discourse about our history. I really do believe that uh, all of us in this country, we are infected, we are burdened uh, by our history of racial inequality, it has compromised us. We are struggling to recover from a narrative of racial difference that has corrupted all of us. We see the world through this racial lens, and we can't just turn our brains off. There is this history that we have to deal with. America never committed itself to a process of truth and reconciliation, and because of that, we remain... A la South Africa, you mean? Like South Africa, and because of that, we remain compromised. And yes, for me, it begins actually with the genocide 
of uh, indig uh, indigenous people in this country. You know, white settlers came to North, North America and perpetrated a genocide. We killed millions of native people. And we don't like the word genocide. We don't use that word because if we were a post-genocide society, we'd have to think differently about our obligations to that population. But it begins there. We begin to think we can treat people differently based on their color, and then comes slavery. And for me, the great evil of American slavery was not involuntary servitude or forced labor. I believe the great evil of American slavery was this narrative of racial difference we created, the ideology of white supremacy that we made up to legitimate our ownership of other human people. You know, there were slaves in Africa, there were slaves in Europe, there were slaves in Asia. But in most of those countries, slavery was transitional. Anybody might be enslaved and you, couldn't, you weren't destined to stay a slave. In America, they were societies with slaves, but in America, we became something different. We became a slave society. We actually made slavery a part of the culture, the economic, the social, the political, the cultural life that we created. And this narrative of racial difference, this ideology of white supremacy, that was the great evil of American slavery. And if you read the 13th Amendment, it doesn't talk about narratives of racial difference. It doesn't talk about ideologies of white supremacy. It talks about involuntary servitude and forced labor. That's what we ended. In the Emancipation Proclamation, you hear us talking about the ending of this forced labor. And the reason why I argue that slavery didn't end in 1865 is because we haven't done anything to actually try to end this narrative of racial difference, this ideology of white supremacy. And because we didn't do it, it didn't end in 1865. It evolved. It turned into decades of terrorism and lynching. The violence that we subjected African Americans to at the end of Reconstruction was rooted in this commitment to reinforcing this narrative of racial difference. You said black people aren't like white people. They've got deficits. They're not as smart. They're not as hardworking. And because of that, we can't ever allow them to be treated equal. And the violence and the terrorism of that lynching era, which was so horrific, uh, was a relationship to this era of slavery. There's a parenthetical there, too. Uh, uh, it's often we were talking backstage, having a wonderful time. And one, of the, one of the great things about writing about legal cases is that legal briefs um, are of necessity historical documents. Um, they go back to precedents, and they have to bring sort of a general understanding of the environment in which a given court decision uh, was, cre was created or established. And one of the other, one of the other legacies of slavery and, re and, uh, and sort of the Jim Crow era uh, is disenfranchisement. Oh, yeah. Uh, just today, the Maryland state legislature uh, vetoed, overrode a governor's veto. Uh, the governor had vetoed a bill that would have restored voting rights to 40,000 people who were out of jail, but they were on parole or probation. And Maryland law, and people, a lot of people don't realize how Southern Maryland is. And I grew up just out south of Philadelphia, and you know, you can almost see the Mason-Dixon. Oh yeah, yeah. So, People don't, people don't realize what South actually is. Mm -hmm. So the disenfranchisement came out of the 1890s and the early first decade of the 20th century when in fact Southern legislators, legislators were trying to reestablish the same kind, right black people out of the constitution right. and reestablish the same kind of disempowerment that had existed during the slave period. That but let's go, let's go to the minute of Dylan Roof, mm -hmm. uh, uh, the, the blonde teenager who walks into mm -hmm. the AME church in downtown Charleston and into a prayer meeting. 
and kills nine unarmed people. And people who were actually pleading with him, and people who had welcomed him to save his soul. Now, you know, show me how is slavery involved in that? Well, I think, you know, if you understand that the, that the evil of slavery was this idea that black people aren't as good as white people, that they're different than white people, and that they have to be made subordinate. And if you then see that manifest during this era of terrorism and lynching, using violence to reassert this, this hierarchy, this racial hierarchy, becomes something that we've all gotten comfortable with. Mm -hmm. We're all very comfortable with it. And it's not entirely Southern, because the truth is, you know, uh, lynching uh, shaped the demographic geography of this nation today. You know, the, the black people that are in, 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 in Harlem and in Cleveland and Chicago and Detroit and Los Angeles and Oakland and Minneapolis and Boston came largely to these communities, not as immigrants looking for new economic opportunities. The black people came to these communities as refugees and exiles from terrorism in the American South. They were fleeing lynching and violence. And they came traumatized oftentimes and injured, trying to create a space where violence would not be the way in which they were made subordinate. But then they found that it was not true. We were still doing that. And then we have this era of segregation where we, where we codified this idea that this narrative made sense. And so this young man was raised by parents who actually got used to the legal subordination of, of, of black people. And I think we, I, I'm gonna get in trouble because I think we're actually not talking about even this civil rights era the way we need to. I think we're too celebratory. You know, I hear people talking about the civil we're rights. We're too celebratory of civil rights? We're too rights? celebratory in my view. It's appropriate that we mark an honor, but everybody gets to celebrate. We don't ask any qualifying questions over who gets to celebrate the civil rights movement. And I hear people talking about the civil rights movement and it sounds like a three-day carnival. On day one, Rosa Parks didn't give up her seat on a bus. On day two, Dr. King led a march on Washington. And on day three, we just changed all the laws. And I worry, I was in Mar when Selma, the president, came in, in, in March of this past year. Uh, members of Congress came. 80,000 people came. And they celebrated the 50th anniversary of the march. And then they went back to Washington. And half of those congressional members voting ag voted against an extension of the Voting Rights Act. And they didn't, and when we were in, in mo none of them knew that today in Alabama, nearly a third of the black male population has permanently lost the right to vote as a result of felon disenfranchisement, the very issue you were talking about. So this young man is living in a world where we have never confronted this narrative of racial difference. And there is a presumption of dangerousness and guilt that follows black and brown people in American society. And so he's acting. Even, even sitting in a church. Even sitting in a church. And look, it, it happened. And you can't educate yourself away from it, just, just as a footnote. Right. You can't make enough money to shield. I was in a courtroom just two years ago in the Midwest, not the Deep South, uh, getting ready to do a hearing. I was there early. I had my suit on. I had my shirt and tie on. I was at defense counsel's table. I probably had this suit on. I don't have that many suits. So. And I was sitting at defense counsel's table, and the judge walked in and saw me sitting there. And he said, hey, 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 you get back out there in the hallway and you wait until your lawyer gets here. I don't want any defendant sitting in my courtroom without their lawyer. And I stood up and I said, well, I'm sorry, Your Honor, I didn't introduce myself. My name is Brian Stevenson. I am the lawyer. And the judge started laughing and the prosecutor started laughing. And I made myself laugh because I didn't want to disadvantage my client. Young white kid came in, came in who I was representing, did the hearing. And afterward, I was thinking, what is it that when this judge saw a middle-aged black man in a suit and tie at defense counsel's table, it didn't even occur to him, that's the lawyer. What that is, is this narrative of difference. It is this way in which we are presuming things. And for this young man 
These were just black people. He could go in and kill them. It didn't matter whether they were in a church or not. They were black. You know, we have these data here. Right now, the Bureau of Justice predicts that one in three black male babies born in this country is expected to go to jail or prison. And somehow that's not a national crisis. I don't understand that. How is that not a national crisis? Well, it's not a national crisis because we think differently about the victimization of people of color. Well, I think there's a, just to give you a footnote, because I love it how the legal briefs have footnotes. <coughs> and they always have good facts on them. But uh, I was just uh, looking at uh, candidates uh, in New Hampshire uh, uh, who are going about, and you know, New Hampshire, which is very white, uh, has a big drug addiction problem. There's heroin and prescription drugs. Now, and during the 90s, as you said, um, the country changed, you know, draconian sentencing, yeah. um, put adolescents on death row, uh, make everyone into super predators, mm -hmm. and then we have crack sentencing 100 to 1. Mm -hmm. uh, and people who, and, and, and then we have a situation where people who have addiction, suffer from addiction, are irredeemable. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, now we had a big story in front of the Times recently um, that the actual overdoses, death by overdose, in rural areas outpacing large cities. And the narrative has changed on the campaign trail. Mm -hmm. You know, Chris Christie, uh, everyone is saying, yes, you know, I, I've known people who have addiction and we've really got to do something about this. Mm -hmm. And the governor of Maine wants to put, a, you know, a wall around Maine uh, <laughs> uh, because he's convinced that, uh, that all the white drug addicts are being seduced by black people from New York. <laughs> and I, I would call him and say that I've been to Maine and it would be impossible to be black get some drugs in Maine. <laughs> <laughs> There's already metaphorically a wall there. But <laughs> I'm sorry, I'll behave. Uh, but what I'm saying here is exemplar of what you're saying. That in fact, now that it is known that the addiction problem is sweeping the white community. Mm -hmm. uh, just the other day, uh, in Los Angeles Times the other day, a doctor was convicted of murder, given 30 to life, for deliberately over-prescribing painkillers to three healthy 20-something patients. So the pendulum is turning here, no? Well, I, no, I think what's turning is that we recognize that we cannot sustain the level of incarceration that we've created. So we went from 300,000 people in jails and prisons in 1972 right. to 2.3 million people in jails and prisons today, 6 million people on probation and parole. 70 million Americans with, with criminal records. arrests. Uh, and, and we went from six, most importantly, we went from $6 billion in spending on jails and prisons in 1980 to, to a little less than $80 billion last year. And that has created an economic crisis that has meant, well, we got to think a little differently about some of this stuff. And I think the, the attitudes about governance and you have people on the right and people on the left saying, no, it's too big, it's too big. Uh, and there will be some shifting. I think we made the choice in the 1980s and 90s to deal with drug addiction and drug dependency as a crime issue. We could have said that's a health issue, right? like we did with alcoholism. Mm -hmm. If you know someone who's an alcoholic and you see them in a bar drinking, you don't call the police. Mm -hmm. You don't think of that as a crime. You think of that as something that may threaten their health. Mm -hmm. And so I think that may shift, but I don't think we've done or seen anything that makes me think that this attitude around race, this narrative of racial difference is going to change. Mm -hmm. Whatever we do in Congress, and whatever we do in states, we will still disproportionately prosecute, 
arrest and convict people of color. And until, I believe, we have this conversation that we have never had about slavery, about lynching, about segregation, and about this presumption of dangerousness and guilt, we cannot marginalize and modify our criminal laws and expect that we're going to see racial justice. Another interesting thing, I think, a, a, a touch point in your um, Marshall Project interview, you talked about the tendency in America to speak of racism and racialism as past, to think of, to think of Jim Crow as past and all, all of its children as past. And you know, I know journalistically, that is definitely a tendency of people you have to fight against because uh, people feel congratulatory uh, and celebratory, as you say. Mm -hmm. So you're, talking, you're saying that you can't have the discussion unless you admit, unless you exclude that easy out of thinking of it as past. A absolutely. I mean, you go to South Africa and people will tell you that there couldn't be progress without truth and reconciliation. In Rwanda, they will tell you they can't recover from the genocide without some commitment to truth and reconciliation. If you go to Germany and you go to Berlin, you can't go 100 meters without seeing markers and stones that have been placed at the homes of Jewish families that were abducted during the Holocaust. The Germans actually want you to go to Auschwitz and reflect soberly on the history of the Holocaust. In this country, we do the opposite. We don't talk about slavery. We don't talk about lynching. There's not a place in America where you can honestly engage with the history of lynching or the history of slavery. We don't talk about the hard parts of segregation. And we don't talk, you know, and, and it is present. And, and because we haven't talked about it, there is this romantic, horrific uh, narrative that still prevails. In my state of Alabama, uh, if you come to Montgomery, there are 59 markers and monuments to the Confederacy in downtown Montgomery. Until two years ago, there wasn't a word about slavery. In the state of Alabama, we had Jefferson Davis's birthday is a state holiday. Confederate Memorial Day is a state holiday. We don't even have Martin Luther King Day. It's Martin Luther King slash Robert E. Lee Day. And it is a present and constant injury. The two largest high schools are Robert E. Lee High and Jefferson Davis High. They're both 99% black. And the question is, where is the shame in this nation about what we did during the time well, of enslavement? Well, I've been thinking about this a lot since uh, the Charleston thing and since that brave young woman climbed the pole and took down the flag at the, at the Capitol. And th when I try to explain it to people, I say to them, when the South filled its streets and public squares to memorials to slavery, mm -hmm. Jefferson Davis, mm -hmm. Bedford Forrest, the whole thing, black persons were non-persons in the eyes of the state. Hence, they had no voice in that. In Memphis, you notice they rename mm -hmm. three parks, yeah. took down, because they have like a, a black majority city council now. Now, you were doing something interesting um, in the Equal Justice Initiative. Um, you've now begun to stir up trouble by going around the South, documenting lynching places. Um, tell us how you're doing that and why you're doing it. Well, I think we have to change the landscape I think we have to change the iconography of this country. I, I think because what the story, tell, the story we're telling to ourselves and to the people who come here is a lie. It's a false story. We did enslave people. The black people in this nation are the descendants of enslaved people. And we don't, you can't find that in the landscape. 
So we want to put markers at all the places where the domestic slave trade was active. The places in Montgomery and New Orleans and Savannah and, and Memphis, they need to be identified and recognized. The history of terrorism that shaped this nation for the first half of the 20th century, that created these black communities in the urban North and in the West, that have created this dynamic that we see in our modern criminal justice, it needs to be marked. And so we want to put a marker at every lynching site. Uh, we're doing a project where we're actually going to lynching sites and we're collecting soil from the spaces where, where people were lynched. And we're putting the soil in jars and we put their names on the jar and we put a date on the jar. And this soil represents kind of a living exhibit. Uh, we want to build a memorial in Montgomery, we've just bought six acres of land. We're going to build this memorial because there ought to be a place in this country where you can come and confront the history of lynching and terrorism in this nation and what it George means. Wallace is rolling over in his grave. <laughs> George Wallace. But we need all the tools of culture and art and architecture and music mm -hmm. and theater and literary, and, and, and literary writings if we're going to recover from this horrific... Uh, shadow that follows us. I don't think, and, you know, and for me, it's not just for people of color. It's for everybody. We are not free in this nation when it comes to race. We're not. You start talking about race, people get nervous. You start talking about racial justice, people are looking for exits. It's an area that we haven't actually achieved. There is something better than what we have experienced in this nation uh, that is yet in front of us, but we're going to have to fight to get it. Let me just give the audience a little, just a little taste of the currency of race, uh, of, of this issue. Um, my father-in-law, who turned 85 this week, was the son of a minister who was a field agent for the NAACP in Missouri, investigated lynchings, and went to lynching sites with his father. So that's how current it actually is. And uh, I was, we were backstage just talking to Brian. Um, this is you know, one of my sort of specialties, reconstruction and the backlash against, I mean, I think what I've also said in parenthetically is that um, the backlash against Obama, in my view, is very much like the backlash against uh, the black middle class and free blacks at the collapse of Reconstruction. I find, I find it equivalent. Um, but let me say also that, just to, just to paint a picture here, uh, there is a civil rights museum in Atlanta, and there was an exhibit here several years ago of lynching, about lynching and they're lynching postcards. You know, up until 1908, you could mail a postcard. I think it was 08. You could mail a postcard through the US mails th uh, showing a burned or mutilated black corpse in the scenes of lynching. It was legal to do so. And those cards are still extant. And uh, I know a gentleman who collects them. And he, was, he had them stored in Atlanta, and he wanted to bring them into the museum. And the museum creators were having difficulty getting the stuff in. And I asked, call them, and I chummed up, and I said, what's the problem here? And the guy said, well, you can't repeat. I'm not saying this. He said, but, so I'm telling you what he said. <laughs> but, but, but you can't tell anyone. What he, what, he, what he said was, people in Atlanta, white people, were afraid of coming to that exhibit, seeing themselves posed next to black corpses as children, and seeing their parents in the crowds. So go on. Well, I think that, I mean, I do think that we are burdened, you know, and I don't think we can hide from it. Uh, we can run, but we can't hide, as they say. And, and I think that's what we've been doing. I really do. Uh, and we have to change that. 
uh, I, we did a project. So we're, and just to kind of personalize this a little bit, I, I know something a little bit about running, mm -hmm. uh, 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 but still not being able to hide. My grandmother was the daughter of people who were enslaved. We were talking about this. My great-grandfather was enslaved in Caroline County, Virginia. And my grandmother was in my ear all the time talking to me about this experience of growing up enslaved. He learned to read at 12 knowing that he could have been sold or killed for having that skill, for having that ability. And uh, my grandmother had this great way. She would educate us. She was just powerful and wise. And when I would see my grandmother, she would give me these hugs and she'd squeeze me so tightly I could barely breathe. And then, uh, uh, and, and then she'd ask me an hour later, she'd say, Brian, do you still feel me hugging you? And if I said no, she would jump on me again. <laughs> and if I said yeah. And by the time we were 10, she had all of our grandchildren trained. She, we would see her and we'd say, Mama, we always feel you hugging us. <laughs> but when I went to uh, Harvard Law School in the 1980s, I didn't tell people I was a great-grandchild of a slave. I started my education in a colored school. When I was a little boy, black kids couldn't go to the public schools in my county. There were no high schools for black kids when my dad was a teenager. I started my education in a colored school. And the lawyers came in and made them open up the colored schools so I could go to high school. And I got to high school and I got to college and I went to law school. When I got to law school, I didn't want people to know. I started in a colored school. I thought I might be giving away something. And that is the burden. Booker T. Washington School for the Colored. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. That's right. But that's the burden that I'm talking about because it will accumulate. And now when I think about that, it bothers me that I didn't tell people. And what I find myself doing now is that I'm telling everybody. I want everybody to know that I'm the great-grandchild of an enslaved family. I want everybody to know I started in the colored schools and trying to do what I can. I want everybody to know that there is this line from slavery and lynching and segregation and mass incarceration that disrupts me, that burdens me, that keeps me up at night. Mm -hmm. But I want them to know that there are these burdens so we can figure out what to do about them. Mm -hmm. We did a project where we have, we're inviting people back. We had a woman from Ellisville, Ellisville Mississippi uh, her son called us uh, when the report came out, because we have in our report a page about a lynching that took place there. And her son told us that when his mother was a, uh, was a little girl, seven years old, her father came home one day and he said, we have to go. They're going to lynch me and my friend. And he grabbed the daughter and they fled to the train station. They went to St. Louis. And she said her father's friend went back to Ellisville. And when he went back, the mob was there and they grabbed him, put him in the jail. Then they pulled him out of the jail and they lynched him. Uh, mutilated him, burned his body, dragged him through the black community, hung him, and then wouldn't let black people come and tear him, bring him, take him down for three days because they wanted that sign to still be there. And it so traumatized the family. And she went from St. Louis to Ohio, Ohio to New York. She had a family of her own. She raised her kids. But her son told me she talked about this lynching all the time. Couldn't remember the name of the man. And uh, when we put out a report, uh, he saw this page that talked about this lynching in Ellisville. And he went to his mother and he says, Mom, there's a report in here about a lynching in Ellisville. And it's this man named John Hartfield. And as soon as he said the name, his mother said, that's the man. And he started reading about it. And he said his mother got very emotional, very upset. And he finally said, you know what, Mom, that's OK. I'm going to go back to Mississippi just to find out more about it. And he said, as soon as he said it, she said, well, if you're going, I'm coming with you. And this past October, September, they came back and we met them in Mississippi, in Ellisville, Mississippi. And we went to the site where this lynching took place. We had a little event there. And it was amazing. Uh, his mother, uh, when she made this trip in September, was 107 years old. 
this took place in, 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 uh, in, in the early 19th, 20th century. And when, he, when she got back home, uh, she called her son, and her son told me that she said that, I want you to know how meaningful it was for me to go back to Mississippi and do that. She says, I didn't realize how burdened I have been. She says, but I went back to that site. She says, I feel like I laid my burden down. And there are burdens that we have to lay down in this country. We cannot continue moving forward and still living through this narrative of racial truth, not telling the truth about our history. Of now, on the ground, I mean, you're a charming character. I mean, when, when he argues in the court, he, he keeps a, a matter-of-fact tone about it. Some people get strained. He keeps a matter-of-fact tone about it. He engages people. Um, what is it like to go to a place in Alabama or Mississippi and walk and knock on someone's door, uh, one of the older residents of the community, and say, hi, I'm Brian Stevenson, and I'm here to talk about and unearth the lynching and burning of James Jones mm -hmm. that happened on this spot in 1920 mm. or 1921 with the, with the town elders standing around mm -hmm. Amused, selling food, having a picnic, a carnival of death. I'm here to unearth. Mm. I'm sure you don't put it quite that yeah. way. But what is it like when well, you do that? I, I think it's it's emotional. We did a project where we did go and talk to people, and just and people are reluctant at the beginning because there's this is the great challenge of this country. This is the real burden that I feel. We've actually never given people permission to talk honestly about what it's like to live with the legacy of slavery or the legacy of lynching or the legacy of segregation. My parents were humiliated every day of their lives. Every time they saw those signs white in color, they weren't directions, those were assaults. And we never really gave, my mother died, died about 15 years ago, and when I, we never really gave her permission to talk about how painful it was to be smart and bright and talented but not be able to show that in so many spaces. We haven't created spaces to give permission to talk about the injuries, the burdens. And so when you create a space for someone, it's emotional. It's emotional. People start talking about how they feel wrong, how they feel injured. And we have even now all of these codes, these things you can't do, things you can't say when you are the only person of color in a particular space or when you're in a space that hasn't been sanitized in a way where you can actually be who you are. And that burden uh, when you get a chance to address it, it gets emotional. Mm -hmm. And not only that, it becomes difficult to recover because you all of a sudden realize that your humanness is being constrained by the lie that we tell ourselves, which is that we don't have to talk about race. Your integrity, your dignity is being compromised because you don't get to speak to the way in which you sweat and you bleed and you hurt and you pain. We told black people in this country for a century. You're not good enough to vote just because you're black. We told kids, you're not good enough to go to school with the rest of us because you're black. And there are injuries connected to that. And so it's emotional and it's cultural and it's all those things, but it's also liberating mm -hmm. when you find your voice. Because you start to say things and think things and hear things. You know, I tell you another story about my grandmother. My grandmother took me back to Caroline County, Bowling Green, uh, when I was young. And uh, she was amazing, and she said, I want you to come with me. We're going to bring your best suit. And I said, okay. I was about 10 years old, and I went down there with my grandmother, and we, she made me put my suit on in the middle of the week. She said, now, we're going to walk down the road, and I'm going to take you someplace. I said, okay. It was a Wednesday. I was confused. I didn't usually wear my suit until Sunday. And we were walking down the road. It was a dirt road, and I looked at my grandmother. I said, Mom, am I, 
I got my good shoes on. My dad's going to get mad at me if I get dust on my shoes. She said, don't worry about your dad. I'll take care of your dad. <laughs> and we got to a field, and we turned into the field. And my grandmother took me to this cabin out in the middle of this field. And I didn't understand what was going on. We got in front of the cabin. She said, we're going to go inside here. And don't say anything. She said, but you're going to hear something when we go inside. And I want you to hear it, and I want you to remember it. And we went inside this cabin, and I stood there, and I was holding my grandmother's hands. And it was an empty cabin. I didn't hear anything. And I couldn't figure out what was going on. And then I saw my grandmother cry. I'd never seen her cry before. And I couldn't figure out what was going on. Because I didn't hear anything, I started crying too. And she squeezed my hand. She took me out. And I said, Mama, why were you crying? She said, don't worry about that. And then I said, Mama, I didn't hear anything. She said, yes, you did. And we walked past that field. I didn't even remember it until I was doing a paper on her many years later. And I was talking to her about her background, her history. And she said, you remember me taking you to that shack, that, that shack in, in Bowling Green? I said, yeah, I do. She said, you know what that shack was, don't you? I said, no, I don't think I do. She said, that was the slave cabin where my father was born. And I go there every year. And she said, I told you you were going to hear something. You don't have to tell me now what you heard. And right now, my office is on Commerce Street in Montgomery, Alabama. And I walked down to the river where thousands of people who were enslaved were brought by rail and boat and were paraded up that street and were put in slave warehouses. I walk up to the auction space where they were sold. And it's funny, here I am in my 50s remembering this story with my grandmother. And I never heard it then, but I think I hear it now. And when I walk up that street, I feel like I hear the sounds of enslaved people who we have never honored, we have never acknowledged. When I go to these lynching sites and sit down with these families, I feel like I hear this anguish, this weight, this burden that has never been lifted. When I go into spaces and talk to people about the stain and the anguish of having to deal with segregation, I feel like I hear something that needs to be heard. I know when I go into jails and prisons, I hear pain and anguish and a kind of weight that we have not addressed. And so it is emotional to create spaces, but it is necessary that we create them. Because through those spaces, we actually find our voice. We say the things we need to say to actually begin to tell truth. You can't have a conference and say truth and reconciliation. You can only get to reconciliation when you tell the truth and people are motivated to respond to that. Mm -hmm. And we haven't told the truth about our history in this country. And until we do that, we will not be free. Uh, question, just a second. Uh, is there some place that, you're that you think you're close to creating that kind of space? Is there some locality that you're close to? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, it's funny. I, we started this project to, to mark these lynching sites, and we've had these events at these sites. It's been really transformative. And now we've created this little space where we're going to build this memorial. I hope it becomes a space like that. We really want we bought these six acres. We want to create a space where uh, you can tell the truth about this history. We're going to have these modules that represent all of the lost victims to lynching and terrorism. I want all the people who fled uh, to Cleveland and Chicago and Detroit to be able to come back and know there's a space where they can honestly reconcile themselves to the exodus that forced them to leave. I want there to be a place that when there are police shootings of unarmed black men and boys, you can go and actually put in context the violence and the anguish that you're experiencing. There ought to be a place that you can go. And so I'm hoping that this memorial site that we're trying to build in Montgomery will be a place like that. Uh, the other place that I find are in these spaces 
where people are allowed to be fully human, where their dignity and their integrity is not constrained by this narrative of racial difference. And every now and then in a church, and every now and then in a meeting, and every now and then in a gathering space, and every now and then on a campus where people are motivated and committed, you'll sense something that feels like the kind of freedom that we're trying to achieve. Uh, before I get into the question, I would just say thing. Where I'm teaching a class at this point, I would turn to the class and I would say, um, if there's one takeaway, that word, I hate that word, but I think, uh, if there's one takeaway from what Mr. Stevens said, what we've learned, I think, in this country in the last two years, in the period, at least since Ferguson, uh, that it is impossible to speak honestly about race and racism in America if you're beginning at the event you're describing, you have to bring history into that discussion. It's not possible to, to talk about it. Uh, so now we're going to questions. Um, there are many African-Americans who have no hope for equality in the US. What would you say to them? Should we have hope for equality? Mm. You have to have hope. Hope is not an option when you are suffering inequality, when you are suffering from poverty and disability. I mean, I think for me, you know, the four things you have to be willing to do to actually create change is you've got to be proximate, you've got to get close to the places where there's inequality, because you can't solve problems from a distance, you've got to get close. Uh, you've got to change the narrative that sustains the problem, and you've got to be hopeful. Uh, you have to be. I mean, I, I never met a lawyer until I got to law school. If I had to meet the thing I wanted to be, I wouldn't have been it, right? right. It, you've got to have, this hope, I mean, hope is ultimately what gets you to stand up when other people say, sit down. Hope is what gets you to speak when other people say, be quiet. And there is this evidence. I mean, the, the, the difficult part of slavery and lynching and segregation is all the pain and anguish. Uh, the amazing part, the transformative part, is that people survive slavery. You and I are here as survivors of slavery. Our four parents actually found a way to create a path where you can sit on the board of the New York Times and I get to make some arguments in the courts. And that's a hopeful narrative. I, I've got to just be a moderator, but let me just say this last thing. Oftentimes, uh, when I've said to people in my work, they ask, what motivates me? Yeah. And I said, if you want to know, I'll tell you that my paternal great-grandfather, mm -hmm. John Wesley Staples, was born, you know, first free black born in this county. Yeah. Born during the you know, Civil War. Yeah. And his mother was a slave, and he was the first free black in his family. Yeah. And he died 10 years before I was born. Yeah. That is what motivates me. A absolutely. And, and, what I, and what I say to young people is that if people could survive slavery, overcome right. slavery, recover from slavery, and survive lynching and terrorism, and survive segregation, then you can survive mass incarceration and the inequalities that we're dealing with in this country. It is not an excuse. It is a narrative that is designed to create hope. And so, yes, I actually think we have to have hope. We have to believe things we haven't seen, or otherwise we are doomed. You know, I, I mean, you know, I didn't think that, uh, that it wouldn't, I knew it wasn't going to be easy to get the United States Supreme Court to say you can't condemn children to die in prison, but we had this hope of it. I actually have a hope that we will abolish the death penalty. I have a hope that we will actually... Um, it's a criminal justice question. Criminal justice reform appears to be the only issue in Congress garnering bi bipartisan support. Are you optimistic for that? I am, uh, but I'm cautiously optimistic uh, because I think, first of all, we have to remember that Congress controls the federal uh, criminal code and federal sentencing. That's only 10 percent 
of the people we have in jails and prisons. If we let everybody out of our federal jails and prisons, we'd still have the highest rate of incarceration. We in the would, world. And so uh, there's only so much we can achieve there. Uh, but the other thing that I, I think we have to be cautious about, I think I'm hoping that there will be some laws changed. But if we don't define what ending mass incarceration looks like, we'll make some changes in the laws, and then three or four or five years from now, we'll have the same prison population, maybe slightly less, and we'll declare victory. That's not victory. We need to commit to cutting the prison population by half. I think we should cut the prison population by 50% in the next eight to 10 years. I think there are a million people in jails and prisons who are not a threat to public safety, who we could let out and not experience any increases in crime. And until we achieve that, we have an incarceration problem. Did you, did you always know you would work in social justice in some capacity? Or were you headed for Wall Street? <laughs> uh, no, I, I, uh, you know, I was just marveling at each step forward. Like I said, we didn't expect uh, to go to a high school because the high schools weren't available to black kids. And then when I got through that, I got to college. I had a great experience. I was a philosophy major in college. Uh, I, I, you know, I was doing music and sports. Uh, I called my mother after two years in college. I said, Mom, I'm so loving college. When I go to the dining hall, they feed me. And if I'm not late for class, if I'm late for class, they don't beat me up. And I said, I'm going to stay in college the rest of my life. <laughs> and I was a senior and I was out on the hill and some kid walked up to me one day and said, you are a senior and you're a philosophy major. What are you going to do after you graduate from college? And I realized, this was a very hostile question to me, I realized that nobody was going to pay me to philosophize when I graduated from college. And to be honest, I, kept, I started looking for ways to stay in school. And because nobody in my family had graduated from college, I didn't know that in this country, if you do graduate work in history or English or political science, you actually have to know something about history, English, or political science. That was pretty intimidating to me. So I kept looking. And that's how I found law school. Uh, it was very clear to me, you don't need to know anything to go to law school. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I signed up I'm not, for that. I'm not, I'm not co-signing that. <laughs> My wife went to law school. I'm not co-signing. <laughs> and so when I was in law school, I became disillusioned because I wanted to do something about race and poverty. And it didn't sound like anybody was talking about race or poverty. And so it was really getting close to people doing social justice work that turned me on. But no, I didn't have... Uh, uh, an, an idea of even what lawyers did. I, once I saw something that I thought I might be able to contribute to, it was clear to me that that's what I wanted to do. Um, have there been any situations in releasing a prisoner that you may have regretted later? No, no, no. I, I, I've met people, uh, I mean, with my work, uh, if we're going to achieve someone's release nine times out of 10, most of the time, we've actually proved them to be innocent. And my only regret is that we weren't able to do it a lot sooner. Uh, that's the kind of regret. We just walked a man. I just had a client spent 30 years on Alabama's death row for a crime he didn't commit, Anthony Ray Hinton. And we walked out of that uh, prison past, uh, last April. And it, and it was supposed to be a happy day. It was supposed to be a glorious day. But all I could do was shed some tears thinking about uh, how painful it was that we could not have made this day happen five years earlier, 10 years earlier, 15 years earlier. I've met people in prisons about whom I could say, uh, this person um, is, may not get to the point where he can get out. This person has some challenges that are gonna make it hard for him to stay out. But I've never met anybody about whom I could say this person is beyond hope or beyond redemption or beyond recovery. And so in my work, no, I've been really fortunate in that respect. 
Uh, I regret sometimes what we do to people when they come out and not providing them services and, and compensation and help and recovery. Uh, but I've never actually regretted creating an opportunity for someone to have a second. The biggest chance. mistake we've made, I'm writing about this now, the biggest mistake we've made in, 19, in the mid-90s in the super predator period, we destroyed college education in prison. Uh, we gave destroyed up, it. Yeah, we did. We gave destroyed up on it. rehabilitation, and now we are going to have a generation of people who are undereducated, underprepared, underemployed, all these things that we could have done a much, effective, a much better job with. Mr. Stevenson, I found myself apathetic after George Zimmerman was, Zimmerman was uh, after the George Zimmerman verdict, um, the innocent the guy who killed Trayvon Martin in Florida. I thought myself innocent after, the, I mean, apathetic after the verdict. What advice would you give a black woman who, um, who has decided to pursue a career in civil rights law? Yeah, I would say get close to places and communities like the community that produced Trayvon Martin. When you get proximate to kids that are struggling, you know, we've heard, most of us have heard our whole lives, if there's a bad part of town, if there are places where the schools are not doing well, if you know there are places where there's a lot of abuse and neglect and drug addiction, you stay as far away from those places as possible. I actually believe the opposite. I think if you want to do civil rights work, if you want to do justice work, if you want to do uh, meaningful social work, you've got to go to the places where kids are struggling, where schools aren't performing well, where people are being abused and neglected. And when you get there, you'll find you have power that you didn't think you had. Sometimes it is the very act of being proximate to suffering and inequality and injustice and being a witness to it that gives you the power, the insight, and the ability to make a difference. Your very presence can be part of the solution. That's Gandhi. Yes, it is. And it, there is something transformative there. There are a couple questions uh, that I'm going to combine, forgive me, because they're pretty much the same. Uh, people are asking, how can you open up this real honest discourse about race in America without scaring white people? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I, I have spent my whole career uh, basically defending people who have done bad things, who have done wrong things. And I'm not interested in punishment. I'm not. And that's the first thing I say. I don't want to punish people for our history. I, don't, I'm not, I have zero interest in punishment. I'm interested in recovery. I'm interested in how we repair. I'm interested in finding a way forward. And I've stood with a lot of people who've done a lot of bad things. And, I, and, and that's why, for me, it is that identity that becomes part of the solution. I'm not interested in blaming and shaming. I, I do think we have to have shame. I think shame is actually a healthy relationship to the things that you do wrong. When you mess up, you need to say, I'm sorry. You need to feel something behind that. But for me, it's not about punishment. And I think we've become such a punitive society mm -hmm. that we don't want to talk about anything bad we've done, even 200 years ago, because we're afraid of what kind of punishment we're going to have to suffer if we acknowledge it. So I think making the commitment that this is not about punishment, this is about recovery, is the first thing. And then the other thing I'm going to say is that, you know, white people aren't free either, right? We have a generation of people who are white in this country who were taught by people they love and trusted that they are better than other people, either directly they were taught this or indirectly because of their skin color. Mm -hmm. and for me, that's a kind of child abuse. And we need to help people recover from that lie. We do. Uh, if you, and, and you look at our world around you and you think, well, 
lawyers are this color, and doctors are this color, and teachers are that color, and this is that color. And it's a kind of misdirection. It's a kind of miseducation. Even Barbies figured that out. And even Barbie figured that out. That's right. And so we have work to do to create a world where we're not burdened by this lens. And so for me, it's about getting everybody to a healthier place. Um, what is your perspective on reparations? I think anyone who makes a mistake and hurts another person wants to do something to help that person recover, or you don't recover either. So I think we actually have to talk about it. For me, it's a different thing. People think reparations, they think money. I don't think that. I, so I think in the states that denied people the right to vote for a century in the 1960s, I don't know why we didn't start thinking about, well, what would be responsible in light of that. I think one thing that might have been responsible is if in these states we said, oh, if you're black, you don't have to register to vote. When you turn 18, you are automatically registered to vote because we deny black people the right to vote for so long. I think it would have been appropriate. And to me, that's reparational. I think we should still have that conversation. I think in those states that deny people the right to vote, you shouldn't have to go to the polls and cast a vote. I think the state should come to your house and get your vote. I mean, why would that be so wrong? And, and it would say something about a commitment to the right to vote for people of color. Now, if I get carried away, I might say, in those states, maybe black people should be able to vote more than once. You know, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> uh, la last question. Uh, last question, I'm going to roll out. You, you had an editorial until you got that point. <laughs> that, that editorial is not running tomorrow's paper. Uh, how can we get involved with the with EGI and the inspiring work that you do? Well, I appreciate that question. If you go to our website, it's just eji.org. Uh, we, we ask people to just sign up to become a part of our community. You can certainly support our work. We're doing these programs all over the country. Uh, we're eager to have a community of people stand with us um, as we try to advance some of these things. We're doing these projects in communities all across the nation. We have tools, I didn't bring any tonight, but we have a calendar that's kind of a tool we use to do some of this education. It's a really, for me, it's a, it's a great tool to begin having conversations. It's not a happy calendar. We don't have Barack Obama's birthday in there or anything like that. We have the dates of a lot of these really challenging moments in our history. We talk about the internment the placement of Japanese Americans in concentration camps. We talk about. Thank you for calling a concentration camp. Yeah, please. absolutely. That's what it was. I mean, we have to use these words, and so it's a count. So we invite anybody here who wants one of the counts. Just say I, I was with Brian at the at the at the historical society, and I want a calendar. We'll send you a calendar, and we'll begin a dialogue with you to engage you in this work, and we'd love to have you support us. Thank you all for coming. Brian Stevenson and Brent Staples, thank you so much. I, we do hope we'll see you again. And thank you all for coming. Please stay for the book signing. <laughs> <laughs>